This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is recurring guest, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. We have a monster show. We covered a lot of ground. We went longer than usual because there's a lot going on. This is one of the most interesting times of the year in college football. We are approaching championship weekend. And there is enough intrigue and uncertainty around the country to make just about every Power 5 title game matter. Uh, Silly season is here and is in full swing. Uh, Chris Peterson tossed everyone a curveball and stepped down at Washington this week. So we'll talk coaches. We'll talk Heisman Trophy race a little bit. Joe Burrow is the clear number one, but who is number two and three? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast and on Apple Podcasts just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast with a lot going on is recurring guest uh, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. When there's a lot going on, I like to talk to Paul because he knows a lot. How are you, Paul? Good. You know, I went on a radio station as we as I mean, how many radio shows are you doing a week um, right now? Yeah, a, a few. I, I You know, I think I, I was turning down a bunch. So I think some of those folks have gotten uh, annoyed and, and have stopped calling me because I was so busy. I was just ignoring them. So I, I've had a little dip in the uh, in the radio hits in the, so, in the recent weeks. So I went on a radio show. Nice guy, major market. But this gentleman kept calling me Meyerberger yeah. over <laughs> and over and over again. So maybe think about that. But thank you for getting my name right. And it's great to be back on the show. It's been a long time. I think I was, it's been three or four weeks. Yeah. So I'm, re- I'm really glad to be back because I, this is enjoyable. And it's also a, uh, a really, again, interesting week because everything's going on this week. You have championship weekend. You have playoff races. We are recording this on Tuesday before the playoff rankings come out. That's not a big deal because I'm pretty sure we know who the top four is, and then it's going to be Utah, Oklahoma. We're interested to see where Baylor is. But we can, without knowing that, we sort of know what the weekend's playoff race ramifications look like, I think, for the most part. Um, so we'll speculate a little bit on that, look forward. But there's also the silly season is way underway. We had, I think, five coaches fired over the weekend. Uh, maybe six, something like that. We've had one hired. Rutgers has hired Greg Schiano. Just before I called Paul to set up this uh, podcast, Matt Campbell agreed to an extension with Iowa State, so he's off the board and Florida State can look elsewhere. So there is, again, a lot going on. Heisman race, we'll probably get into a little bit of that. Let's start with some of the coaching stuff. Let's play this game. Let's play the 
what job is better. But maybe actually let's flip it. And what job is worse? Arkansas, Ole Miss, or Missouri? I had a coach tell me, you take any one of those jobs, you're getting you're taking a job to be fired in four years. Mm. I think the worst one is Arkansas, right? I mean, you have to take into account the state of things. And Ole Miss, compared to Arkansas, is like, you know, late 60s Packers. Like, they're a well-oiled machine. So I think Arkansas is the worst of the three uh, based on the uphill climb ahead. I think Missouri is the – did I say best? I meant worst. Arkansas is the worst. Arkansas Missouri, is the worst of the three. I think Missouri is the best of the three um, because you're in the east. Um, there's a track record of success in the 21st century. I mean, in this decade, even, um, you have St. Louis as your recruiting hub. You have a 500 to 750 mile bubble to recruit where you can go into, theoretically, you could go as low as into some semblance of SEC country. You go into Ohio, you go into Indiana. If you, if, if things were really clicking for you, I'm sure you'd have some cachet. Um, so that's how I would rank them all missed in the middle, but Arkansas has to be the worst because that's, you got to get hire a coach with some patience because that's going to take some time. I feel like Arkansas is hiring a guy whose best case scenario is to be fired in three or four years, but have it be cleaned up for the next guy. Like I feel like that's the the coach who goes in there is going to be fired, and if he does a great job, his success will be seen in the next guy. That's yeah. You know, it's a broad statement, but I think that's where Arkansas is right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree. I mean, I don't disagree that that's a great idea for a hire. I just don't think Arkansas has the foresight to do something like that. I, I think they're going to swing for the fences and go boom or bust. But you're right. I mean, for Arkansas at this point, um, if you were smart and you were in a room and you realized that you could spend, you know, twelve million to fifteen million for a boom or bust guy, or you could played a little safer i think you're exactly right i, I don't know if the next guy is going to either be around long enough to see it to fruition on either end of it either because it goes two and ten four and eight seven and six eight and four and that guy jumps before bowl play year four or because it's two and ten two and ten three and nine three and nine and you know they're recruiting nicely and there's no troubles and they're retaining players and the future looks brighter but he's fired for a lack of results um i would have to guess that based on their track record that the most likely next four years is the latter that it's a tough four years and, you know, we're going to talk about who they might hire. I, I, you know, if you hire Lane Kiffin, the possibilities there are, are, are high. The potential is high, but also at the same time, like you said, there's a very high likelihood that likelihood that the next guy after this guy is going to be the one who wins at Arkansas. For purely entertainment purposes, you hire Lane Kiffin, right? I mean, for our entertainment, I'm not sure how it, it could be great. It could be great. Like maybe, you know, Lane, you know, Lane recruits pretty well, and Lane draws up some really good plays. So who knows? Maybe maybe they catch lightning in a bottle, and Lane is sort of their version, uh, the new version of Petrino, right? Because Petrino, at his best, was a guy who you know drew up good plays and and kind of gave you a little bit of an advantage with the way he ran his offense. But you never quite knew what you were getting off the field. So maybe Lane could be Petrino. And again, I, I just think there's potential for a lot of entertainment with Lane back in the SEC in the same division as Alabama. Yeah, for sure. And look, like I think if you're an Arkansas fan or even if you are a, a university individual, I think you could probably convince yourself of anything right now. And you know what I mean? Like you could, you, this is like, you're like 38, 39 years old, you're single and, and you're surveying the market and you're like, okay, uh, this looks great to me because my alternative is, is to be alone and to be terrible for the rest of my life. Um, I think they could probably delude themselves into thinking that Lane Kiffin is going to be a home run. Lane Kiffin's not a home run. If he was a home run, he, he would have 
you know, hit a home run at the previous multiple stops that he's been at. But, you know, I think actually, in my opinion, Lane Kiffin is a safer hire for some of the reasons that you listed, because he brings excitement to the program. He brings eyeballs to the program. You know, he's going to recruit, even though I think recruiting in state Arkansas is something that is is obviously extremely valuable to the program. So that would be where his focus would be. But he's got a national reputation, obviously knows how to coordinate an offense. And, yeah, it'll be exciting. It'll be entertaining. People will care about Arkansas. So in a lot of ways, he, he checks all the boxes. But um, it all comes down to the eternal question, Ralph, which is what every program needs to ask itself at this juncture. Who are we and what can we be in a realistic sense? And the, and the problem is I don't believe that a lot of these searches are driven by realism. No, and I think you know you can probably make a good case that that's the situation for Ole Miss and Missouri to a certain degree. They both – you know, four years, Barry Odom basically being sort of okay, took over in a rough situation with uh, throughout not just un- not just with the team but with the university after Gary Pinkle. And, and again, you sort of look at Missouri and think, what exactly do you think you are? And B, these changes are driven by the premise that we will upgrade. When the fact of the matter is, there's such uncertainty in the pool of available coaches that what you're mostly doing is just reaching into the grab bag, pulling something out, and hoping it will be better than what you've had. Because ultimately, what it will most likely be is something similar to what you have, but but you don't know until the guy gets in the job if it's going to be a success or not. So you shake up the bag, you reach in, you grab something, and go, okay, well, this will be better, we hope. You hope. You right. Hope, you but look, like if we want to be very specific with Missouri, you shouldn't have hired Barry Odom in the first place. I mean, let's just get real. See, I don't, um, I don't know if I'm, I agree with that. I, be, be, I, I, I agree with it, Ralph, just for two reasons. Number one is I agree with the hire in the first place because, A, I think continuity in sports, um, certainly in college football, based on my own experience, is, is extremely important. And secondly, um, promoting Odom, in a, in a sense, paid the ultimate respect to his predecessor who had built that program into something – um, far beyond what anyone could have imagined in the early 2000s in, in Gary Pinkle. So I agree with it on those two metrics. On the other hand, uh, the promotion in-house um, has a spotty track record. And you have to ask yourself at that time, four years ago, um, who else was hiring Barry Odom? If Barry Odom was a defensive coordinator at even at Texas or at USC, would Missouri have considered him? No, of course not. So I think that's why I had issues with the hire from the start. This isn't a ha-ha, told you so. I think he did a, a, a nice job, all things considered. I think he deserves to, to get another shot down the road at, at some level, at some point, whenever he wants it. But I thought it was a misguided hire from the start. All right, then let's, let's start, instead of arguing over Barry Odom, because who wants to do that, let's, you open the door <laughs> to the big news, which, which, which I probably should have started with, and that is Chris Peterson walking away from Washington, which was startling and shocking because there was literally no hint of this. But as with many of these moves, not so surprising if you sort of know Chris Peterson, because in some ways this was a very Chris Peterson type move, right? Like he is, if, if you've ever been around him, and, and I don't know if a lot of people are close with him, but I think anybody who's ever been around him sort of understands that he's he's wired a little differently than a lot of these coaches. And you could see him in retrospect going, you know, I'm maybe losing my fastball a little bit. I could use a, to, to step away and sort of recharge, as he said, to use his words. That sort of makes sense for Chris Peterson. 
I was wondering your reaction to the news and also getting into the idea of promoting from within. Jimmy Lake, they, no coaching search at Washington, which is also very Chris Peterson-ish. No coaching, coaching search at Washington. Jimmy Lake is the guy, and they are moving forward with that. Well, I'll say for Lake, the one difference between Lake and Odom, as we all know, is that Lake had power five head coaching opportunities yes. in the past and turned it down Very because true. he knew this day was coming. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a slight difference there. And I actually think it's more than slight. I think it's an important difference and, Very and difference. Uh, juxtaposition between him and Odom. Um, my feelings about Peterson are um, like you, you used the word surprised and, and shocked. Surprise and shock comes from the fact that a guy – um, who I believe very firmly is is a top five coach of this generation, of this millennium, um, who is unbelievable in almost every single respect, stepping away. You assume in all walks of life when you're at the top of your game that you keep going, you know, because so that's shocking to me. Uh, the truth is, as you said, the, the list of people who truly know Peterson from our side of the aisle is zero. I don't think anyone knew him. Uh, I don't think that was because no one tried. And it's not any any statement about Chris Peterson's personality or that he's standoffish. Chris Peterson was interested in, in very few things. Chris Peterson loves football. Um, and most of all, he loves impacting the lives of his players and his coaches. And I think that drove him nonstop. My interactions with Peterson, which probably account for one-on-one time, maybe three hours over the course of my career, um, was that he hated everything else. <laughs> and, and you know what I mean? Right. And, and maybe hate's a strong word, but he very much disliked recruiting. Um, and I think the way that Washington did recruit was a reflection of that. Keep your pool very small, build extremely strong relationships because we don't want to get burned on either side of, the, of this equation, whether on signing day or two years down the road when you're upset about playing time. Um, so I think they, he zigged when a lot of other people zagged. Uh, I think he was highly intellectual, highly engrossing in terms of a conversation. It was captivating talking about football or anything else, uh, highly intelligent. Um, but like you said, at some point, when you run differently and you run at a different speed than almost every other coach in the country, if not everyone else, it, um, the, the not shocking part is that, like you said, he needed to recharge because I don't think it came easy to him like it comes to a lot of other people, the, the 24-7, 365 grind. I'm going to pull up the email I got from somebody who knows Peterson very well. It goes back with him a long period of time. Surprised about the move, and then again, not surprised. Always thought he would not be a lifer in coaching. Felt he had other things to do before he officially retired. Pete is one of those guys who recognizes things about himself long before others, which might support the reason he needs to recharge, if that is the reason. And basically, I was just asking around, like, hey, is everything okay? Because that's the first thing. When, like, when guys like Stoops and people you know, step aside early, you also, you know, they might want their privacy, but sometimes, but as a reporter and so, sort of as a human being, you're interested in, like, hey, is everything okay with this person? Do they have any health issues? Is everything okay in their family? So you start snooping around on those two levels and what I I and a lot of other people got back is no, this is just something he's going to do. But the interesting part of that was, you know, noticing things about himself before others might, you know, again, like, you know, they had a, a poor year this year, you know, maybe he looked at himself and said, this is to a certain degree on me. I don't like the way I did my job. So maybe it's time for me to not do this job and let somebody else do it. But he also, I mean, he left the door wide open to come back with the whole recharge comment, as opposed to somebody like Stoops, where I think he's 
he might be gone for good. I, I think Peterson made it pretty clear that he's not done coaching. Oh, no. I don't think he's done coaching. Because I think, like I said, uh, he's going to stay in a role at UW where he can have that impact on people and he can be a, like a Yoda to, to Jimmy Lake and those guys. Um, but I think his heart is with development and his heart is with um, building relationships with 18 to 23-year-olds. And look, like I'm not going to say that he won't go to another level of competition. Uh, if I had an NFL team and I wanted to hire a coach, um, Chris Peterson's on, on, on the list. I don't know about you. I'm that, calling Chris Peterson. He's an, available. I'm calling a, him. That's an interesting one because, you know, again, he doesn't like the recruiting piece. Or I shouldn't say doesn't like, but he is he's a little skeptical of the recruiting piece. Unlike a guy like Urban Meyer, he is not, you know, I, I'm, I'll equate it to Meyer. Meyer really is, is sort of an imposing figure to his players, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think almost all the Ohio State players, without criticizing Urban, because a lot of them loved Urban for it, will tell you that Urban is a real hard ass. And I don't know if that flies in the NFL. I've had people who have worked with Meyer and like I just I, I just don't know if like twenty eight year old professionals who go home to a wife and kid are going to put up with that. Peterson is not that. Peterson is definitely not that that type of person. And I could see him possibly being organized in a way. And you remove the recruiting piece, and now we're just sort of building culture in the building. But I am treating everybody here like an adult. That could be interesting. I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily rule that out. Yeah, and, and I said it before. I hope people um, at this point, even if I understand he's going to coach again, but just take a moment to to take stock of what Peterson has done as a college coach. Because there was a time up before his kind of first two rebuilding years at, at Washington when and he had a higher winning percentage than Newt Rockney. You know, and he was the guy that everyone, and even, I'm trying to think the last time, I think it was maybe two years ago. So it has been a little bit of time. But a couple years ago, I remember sitting in, in an office with a, uh, a Power Five, a Big Ten head coach, and just talking at the end of, of a conversation as we do and picking each other's brains. And he was like maybe the fourth or fifth coach that I can remember who asked me, what do you know about Chris Peterson? You know, what do you know about the way he operates about this and about that? I think he was an object of fascination because, like you said, there are there are a a variety of leaders in in sports and life. There are yellers and screamers. There are cursors and there are people who, you know, only say hell, damn and ass like Dabo. Um, And then there are people who kind of quietly and aren't necessarily cuddly, but quietly build respect between themselves and their coaches and their players. And I think Peterson was a guy who was never buddy, buddy necessarily, but somehow developed and demanded in a sense, the respect of his charges because he went to work every day and was consistent. And I think that consistency is what spoke to people. The other interesting thing about him, if he decides and when he decides, I want to try to coach again, if he wants to coach the college level, you know, he was also, you know, again, it was not a surprise that he ended up at Washington after Boise. You know, he he didn't like the idea of going to USC and sort of being a celebrity. The idea of Chris Peterson going into like an SEC school is almost impossible wow. is almost impossible to comprehend because again the what you are asked to do at those schools as far as being like the front facing representation of not just the program but of the university doesn't sound like anything he would want a piece of you know i remember the the one big story i did on peterson when they went to the playoff a couple of years ago was just how much he enjoyed seattle being a place where 
the culture was not all consuming about sports and football. They were very passionate fans, Huskies fans and and Seahawks fans. But like this wasn't the world to them. And he loved the idea that there was just so much else going on in Seattle that it wasn't all about the football team. So, you know, and that's just a long winded way of me of saying like, I'm, I'd be, I'm curious to see if he comes back and how he comes back and what, what would be the right fit. You know, again, texting with people who know him somebody was like hey maybe he can go back and be the quarterbacks coach for dan hawkins at uc davis right like go he back once was, like he yeah, once was but like wouldn't that be a chris peterson thing, thing to do i doubt he will do that but wouldn't that be a chris peterson thing thing to do yeah he's he's very calculated and i think calculated implies deviousness but no he's very calculated i think he used the words when he left for uw from boise he said it was time you know it was time. It wasn't dollars and cents to him. It was time. I know that uh, in addition to family needs and wants from his side, he just felt that it was time. Um, and I have no doubt that he sat back at some point in the season and felt that something was off and said it's time. So time will tell, obviously, where he comes back. But I, college football needs Chris Peterson because you need guys who do it the right way, run clean programs, develop talent, and uh, and win, yeah. you know? Give me the antidote to your SEC madness. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how how this plays out with with Peterson. You know, as of right this moment, USC still has a coach, and it's still Clay Helton. I don't want to do too much into the speculation of that. Florida State has not hired a coach, and but thinks it probably there'll probably be a bunch of these hirings as early as next week, because now the timetable for getting this thing done is so ramped up. Which, uh, let me ask you this, uh, before I get specifically into Florida State, it seems like if you look at the last couple of years, there have been a lot of like hires that have just gone off the rails. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's just perception because we've had a couple of guys fired after two years. But it, it does make you wonder, between the uncertainty of the whole process in general and now you ramp up the speed of the process, it, it just seems like the last thing in the world. It, it makes me believe, if I'm USC... Why don't I just keep Clay Helton? Because this process between the uncertainty and the speed at which it what must be done is just ripe for disaster. The, the whole coaching search and hiring process is just riddled with problems and stumbling blocks that make it more likely that you will fail than succeed. I will say this. So it, overall and this is probably dating back 15 years or so, there's just less patience, period, right? There's less patience for uh, rebuilding, less patience for a step back, less patience for two years in a row where things fall a little bit short of expectations. So just overall, that ex- those, that, that, that's an issue in coaching. But you're right. Like Nowadays, um, signing day is like two weeks away. Right. And 75 to 80 to 85% of all prospects are going to sign you know, in two and a half weeks. Um, so if you're going to fire somebody and you're Florida state, like you almost begin, begin to understand a, why you would hire, fire someone in October, November and B, you need to have someone ready to go because you miss one recruiting class. And all of a sudden, you know, two years later, you have no depth and things fall apart. Um, I don't think that this early signing period is conducive to, to, uh, smart decisions, well thought out decisions, reasoned decisions, because you're like looking at the clock, like, damn, we got to go. You know, we need to we need to hire somebody today. So uh, it's not helping matters. Certainly, I, I wouldn't blame that for the reason why Chad Morris won zero SAC games in two <laughs> years. But it, it's it's a factor. It's a factor because 
correct me if I'm wrong, but like even 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, guys were getting hired into late December, start of January. Yes. Like hires were dragging out. So when you have two weeks to make a decision that probably would be better served taking two months, you're bound to make mistakes. Right. You also end up putting the coach in a situation, and this is something I think that happened with Taggart and probably happened to a certain degree with Morris, because now, okay, you've hired him. He's got two weeks to go until signing day. Now he has to throw a staff together, which Mm -hmm. means that maybe he's not getting his first choices because that's the thing. Like You're weighing – you're making long-term decisions based on short-term factors because, well – I can't get this guy until after the Rose Bowl, so Mm -hmm. I'm going to take this other guy, be it at the head coaching level or then you're bringing your head coach, and he has to make that decision on on an assistant level. So these are supposed to be long-term decisions, but you're making them determined by short-term factors because you can't get that guy until January 2nd. Terrible, terrible, terrible idea, right? I mean, just you're putting yourself in a major hole by how you're going about making these decisions. Yeah, and you are bound to make a mistake. You know, I don't think like make a mistake on the level of firing Matt Luke. Like that's your choice. You have made that bet. But your ability to hire a guy in 14 days at Ole Miss who's going to, I mean, a get the 25 guys who walked out of a team meeting back onto the team, and b fill a recruiting class which probably is already suffering its rash of decommitments. I mean. You're basically saying like, all right, well, we're going to give up this time for this recruiting class and try to make it up next year, but it's a disaster. Yeah, but and, you know, right, it's a disaster. They, like, right. there's nothing we can even say. And not to mention, so you're 17 years old, you're from Wazoo, and you're like, well, I've been committed to Ole Miss for a while, and I really like Ole Miss, but they just fired my coach. And oh, oh, what's what's that, Missouri? Oh, you're filled up, Mississippi State. You're filled up. Do I stay here? Do I go to Southern Miss? Do I do whatever? Um, you're putting everybody into a bind. Right, you know. and you're going to stay, maybe, because you're right, because everybody else is filled up, but that means you're almost like, you know, 40% chance you're in the portal at the end of your freshman year, right? Yeah. Oh, and by the <laughs> way, that coach, he, he doesn't run a 4-3, it's a 3-4, so yes. it's kind of a tweener. Uh, right. You might want to look elsewhere. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing is crazy. It, be- you, it makes you realize this. Uh, this is just a comparison. The comparison is... Um, Places like Clemson never lose assistant coaches. Places like Alabama loses a defensive coordinator every single year and cycles through offensive coordinators and whatever. Um, consistency, continuity, ability to uh, teach a repeatable action um, is so powerful when you're working with similar talent. Uh, so for me, at a place like Ole Miss or Missouri or Arkansas, and maybe that's not the best example because all those coaches kind of earn their their fates, but there's something to be said for that, let's just stick stick to our guns. We're not going to win a national championship. It's okay to go six and six, seven and five, eight and four every single year. I mean, just consult your like program media guide in August and look at your track record for your for your history and, and try to realize where you are on the totem pole. Okay, before we take a break and then we'll talk about some games and some Heisman. I have a and I I, I texted you this rather cryptically, so I'm only imagining you were like, "What?" Yeah, um, I'm excited for this. I so, want to hear this. So I have a Dan Enos rant. And I don't know Dan Enos. He has been uh, noted to do good work, right? Uh, he was the uh, head coach at Central Michigan. It was Central Michigan for a couple of yes, years. did and, a fine job. Yeah, and, and got them to a couple of bowl games. Was one of those guys who left a head coaching job to be an 
uh, a coordinator with Arkansas, I believe it was, uh, offensive coordinator with Arkansas, right. right at that time when it was becoming really obvious that the Power Five was just going to be starting to pay as assistants so well that you'd be better off being an assistant at the Power Five level than a head coach at the G5, especially the low G5 level. Mm-hmm. So he has done some good work throughout his career. I do not know him personally. This is nothing personal toward Dan Enos. But last year, uh, when Miami made its hire of Manny Diaz, Manny Diaz then hired Dan Enos. And a lot was made of Dan Enos leaving Alabama. And, and a lot was also made of Dan Enos's time at Alabama, because I had Alabama fans telling me, why would Jalen want to transfer and not have the coaching of Dan Enos? <laughs> Why would Jalen possibly want to leave here early and not even serve as a... Because he'll be far better served as a backup being coached by Dan Enos than he would be by you know going elsewhere and, and looking for a new job somewhere else. Okay, that's fine. And, and you know, Enos did well at, at you know, Tua and Hertz were both really good players. So clearly he must have done okay to at least not screw them up. And then Miami came in and grabbed Enos, and Manny Diaz could not tell enough people, the best commitment I got, forget the transfer portal, forget recruiting, was Dan Enos. And we wrote stories about where's Dan and you know, and how he sort of snuck out of town in Tuscaloosa and ran over. And that was a huge, huge hire. And Dan Enos, I should have done this before. Dan Enos is making a lot of money now as Miami's offensive coordinator. And I'm going to try to find exactly how much he is making. USA um, Today will have that information. Yes, it will. Um, because USA Today is really good at that. So you Steve look Berkowitz. it up. You look it up Shout for out. me. You look it up for me. Um, Excuse so me. anyway, so now uh, I bring up him because now he has been at Miami. And Miami is a tire fire. Their offense is miserable. They have multiple quarterbacks who look completely inept. Uh, in different ways, right? Like uh, different levels of ineptness. Like Jaron Williams is like that inept that you say, boy, that guy could be good, but like he just makes way, way too many mistakes. And Nikozi Perry is inept in the way that like, boy, that guy looks like he's afraid to play quarterback. And my point of this is this is a guy who's now become like a like pro- probably a millionaire on the backs of like being at Alabama, situating himself with – not just Nick Saban, the great coach, but Alabama's great players. Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagovailoa, Vailoa, essentially made Dan Enos a millionaire, right? Because he got to be near these five-star players, and he became a great coach and really much desired and well sought after coach because of that. And again, I'm not trying to pick on Dan Enos because there's a lot of good coaches who sometimes find themselves in bad situations and have bad years. But I think that it's a an example of me of a bigger picture thing of like we sort of like throw a lot of credit to these coaches. Right. And this coach did a great job. And, and it's it's also a, sort of an example of. How everybody is just I don't I I hate to even bring this topic up but everybody's making so much money and getting rich and being lauded off of their work with these players and these players are basically just getting an education and it's just like Dan Enos like Dan Enos became a superstar because he got to hang around with Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Hurts and became a millionaire because he got to hang around Alabama around all their five-star players. And that's the system that we are working in right now. Where Dan Enos becomes a millionaire because Tua Tagovailoa is great. 
Ralph, never trust someone with two first names. That's what I say. <laughs> it's the truth. Don't trust anybody two first names. Name a two first names person who you trust. I, 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 I challenge you. <laughs> I, I will not do that um, because I will – well, I can't think of any. Yeah, there you go. Let, let me say about Enos. Um, a, uh, we don't have our 2019 numbers. Last year for Alabama, he was making like half a million. So you assume that he's upper ranges of, of six figures, maybe maybe close to a million. Yeah. Um, he didn't do a good job this year. I don't think he earned a million dollars at Miami. Yeah, and I, again, I don't, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not looking for you to, to defend him. I will leave it at that. We will go to a break. But I think he is indicative of a system that allows the coaches to become stars simply by proximity to players. And that there are far less really great coaches, a lot of good, hardworking coaches, but far less really great coaches, but but a lot of really great players who then make their coaches look like great coaches. But what does that say about how we cover the sport? That the stardom of players has not grown. It's remained stagnant. The stardom of a player in 2019 is Tua is as is as famous in 2019 as as. Uh, you know, OJ was in 1967 as a player, you know, the stardom of players has remained on a straight line high, but it hasn't, it's plateaued, but the stardom of assistant coaches has changed dramatically. Hasn't it? Right. Like even 20 years ago, were we talking about, uh, Bill Bienbaugh? I mean, or his equivalent at, at, uh, no, Texas we in 1999. Do we even know who that was? Were they showing him on TV, we- you know, with his, with a graphic? We were no. not. We were not because we've gotten so deep into the weeds on this sport, and we we can't. We we need to cover it at the next level, the next level, the next level. We keep pulling the onion, uh, you know, uh, pieces of the onion back to try to find what what really makes this thing go, what really makes this team interesting, uh, because fans want that, right? They want every last detail. So we start diving into who are the good coordinators, and then it's who are the good assistant coaches, and we cover it like it's big news, like. When when Dan Enos becomes the offensive coordinator at Miami, it's not no longer just a brief in the paper. Like that wouldn't have even been more than two hundred and fifty words in the Miami Herald ten or fifteen years ago. And now it's a big deal. It's a talking point for us on podcasts. And again, that you know, it's a reason why we have a job. I don't necessarily want to crush the the sport too much. But the sport has become so big, we cover it on such a granular level, this is the result of it. We dig so deep and try to find, like, where are the advantages, who are the up-and-comers, and fans want to know that, and we want to know that, and needless to say, these coaches and their agents want us to know that because it benefits them. So, you know what? Maybe we are part of the problem. But oh, we are. We are. We are absolutely. Not to mention the fact that we have no idea what constitutes a good offensive line coach or a good offensive coordinator or a good defensive Other coordinator. Other than what people tell us, right? And we hope right. that we're asking experts who let us know. But generally speaking, almost everybody we're talking to has some type of agenda. So we see results. Right. We ask experts. And then we sort of put two and two together and see how that plays out. But ultimately, you know, like any good coach will tell you, I am as good as the players I have. There you go. All right. You're exactly right. All right, we're going to take a little break. I'm going to cool off. I'm, I'm, I almost feel like I have to write Dan Enos an apology letter because I don't. I, said, I didn't necessarily mean to crush him. 
I was just trying to make a, an, a broader point using him as an example. We are going to take a little break here in the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We will talk about Championship Weekend and a little Heisman with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. So championship weekend, Paul. Ralph, let me ask you quickly. Do you write letters to people? I do not. Uh, like handwritten letters? Yes. Do you Bill Snyder coaches? No, I do <laughs> I do not. I, you know, part of it is, well, part of it is like everybody else in, in like our generation. Like who does that? Like it's just not something that people do anymore maybe you do i'll ask you in a second uh the other part of the little the literal handwritten part i have terrible terrible penmanship <laughs> to the point where i would almost be embarrassed to write a letter to someone because i might have to print it anyway so how about you do you write letters i do i send out letters uh at the end of the season you... and i've made my list of, of coaches i'll send it to typically it's to people that i don't talk to um you know, so I'll send it to a coach who I thought did a really nice job, who maybe I've never met before, not for any reason. Um, I don't pretend to think that it's going to turn into some amazing relationship with Chris Kleiman or something like that. But, you know, I don't travel as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. Maybe you as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't get FaceTime with a lot of people. I mean, I get one to two percent of the FaceTime that I used to. So it's a way, at least for me, to uh, because I can't call him. You know, I can't call Kyle Winningham because I don't have his number. And it's just, I mean, I could get him on the phone for a story, but I can't call him and say, hey, you had a really nice year. Yeah, Tell yeah. me did, the story nice behind job. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a letter to me is, is an old-fashioned way of doing it. But like you said, you're right. Like, I, I don't usually hear back, thanks mm-hmm. for your note, <laughs> you know. Right, right. So I don't know if it's really registering. But for me, I just find it to be a little way of, of um, creating some sort of human connection. I like that. Good for you, Paul. You Thanks. also seem like the type of person who you're a thoughtful person who reads a lot of books. So I would imagine that you also uh, that writing letters is also something that doesn't surprise me about you. Yeah, not, but not that I don't uh, read, my but you also terrible. Well, that well, that's good to know. So do you do you print? Do you or do you just make a concerted effort that okay, I'm going to really really try hard to be neat here? Oh, I just try really hard. Okay, try really hard, and how it works like it's back like I'm back in third grade. The first line is. A plus penmanship. I get to the bottom. It's it's yeah. like I've suffered a stroke in the middle. <laughs> you know, like I've had Bell's palsy by the bottom, and it just turns into a disaster. I'm gonna. I want to hit every single championship game, but some of them will be lightning round. So why don't we just get the lightning round out of the way at the very beginning? Uh, what's interesting about Conference USA? Uh, Louisiana Tech and Florida Atlantic. UAB, UAB, and FAU. I'm sorry. Think, yeah, UAB uh, and okay. FAU. Well, UAB. Look, I'll say about Louisiana Tech. I had them in my top 25 about three weeks ago. They were 8-1 and one at the time, I think, and then they had some suspensions and injuries. They, they blew it down the stretch. What's interesting uh, quickly on either side is, A, like we mentioned with Kiffin, could be his last game at FAU, theoretically, if he goes to Arkansas. I mean, we may know before the game that he's leaving. From the UAB perspective, this was not a team that was supposed to be very good. Um, not to mention, just in general, we all know their recent history. 
that like the backbone of those teams that Bill Clark rode to incredible immediate success in the face of incredible adversity, those, you know, his first two or three years back, um, that they, they like left on mass. So this was a really young team, a really unproven team. I thought it was a six and six team in the preseason. So my general takeaway would be, uh, everyone's gonna be talking about Kiffin. I think for me, if I'm a power five AD and I'm, and I'm looking and, and maybe I'm going to my, Group B guys, Bill Clark to me is a safer pick as a program builder than Lane Kiffin. Yeah, I think uh, Bill Clark at a place like Ole Miss might not be a really might not be a bad idea at all. Boy, the MAC, boy, it, it was a rough year in the MAC in that like nobody really sort of asserted itself. I think you have like a six and seven, a couple of seven and five teams squaring off in this championship game. But hey, Jim McElwain, who I trashed as a hire before the year. <laughs> Did a great job at Central Michigan. Really great job. They're they're playing tremendous offense, and uh, so yeah, Central Michigan, Miami. Yeah, biggest turnaround in the FBS this year by McElwain. They were one eleven, one and eleven to eight and four, potentially nine and four. Like you said, the MAC has been a disgrace to me. This is the worst the MAC has been in, in a really long time, at least in the last five years. Part of the issue is NIU. It's it's clear that coaching turnover has finally caught up with them. Um, Toledo was at 1.4-1 with a really good loss to Kentucky and a nice win against BYU, and they turned into you know, one of the worst teams in the group of five for the last month and a half. Um, I thought Ohio, under Solish, this was going to be the year they won the MAC. They didn't even win their own division. So this feels to me like kind of like that time when UCLA made the Pac-12 title game because mm-hmm. USC wasn't eligible, and you were like, well, we've got to send somebody. You yeah. know? And it feels like they're just sending somebody right now because this is not what we're used to. We're used to seeing at least one MAC team in the top 25 at this point of the year. If App State had beaten Georgia Southern and not basically sort of fell asleep for the first two or three quarters of that game, because I think if they just would have had 10 more minutes or five more minutes, they would have won that game. Would they be the group of five representative in the um, New Year's Six? Or would they be playing for that going into the Sunbelt Championship against Louisiana? I think they'd be in the driver's seat, don't you? I mean, I understand that the American has better, you know, better name recognition and, and, and better reputation with the committee. But if you're App State and you're 12-0 and 0, and this isn't your first rodeo, you've been dominant for three or four years in a row under Satterfield and now Eli, and you are have two Power 5 wins, uh, you, you are the team of the Carolinas, you own both states, um, to me, I would put them in the driver's seat. Um, it'd be hard to say, from my perspective, that say Memphis and Cincinnati had equal records. How they would consider Memphis having beaten Cincinnati two weeks in a row, um, but clear to me that if if App State was unbeaten, if Cincinnati beat Memphis, there's no way that a ten and two Cincinnati team was going to come over thirteen and zero App State from my perception. Yeah, uh, and, and speaking of coaches, Billy Napier has done a nice job at Louisiana. Another guy who hung around Saban and and and, and launched his yeah. career. And you know what? But he's also I, done a good job. He's done a nice job. They're going to give they games, games, even yeah. in Boone. Yeah. I think Louisiana's a. It, they had a rough week against Monroe, which is a rivalry game, but they've been pretty dynamic and pretty dominant um, through most of the of Sun Belt play. So I think they're going to give App State a game. And one thing, one thought I had about Napier when I realized that they were going to go ten and two. Um, like there is this chase, like kind of by proxy to be Saban's replacement, like these guys scattered across the country who you're like, could be him, could be him, could be him. Mm. One of them in Billy Napier took over a program that was on a bit of a downswing under Hudspeth that had get run into some trouble and has done the best coaching job of all the accolades. So I'm not saying you go from Louisiana to Alabama, 
But maybe if Saban stays another five years, it's Louisiana to X school to Alabama. I'm just saying. I mean, he's a guy who is building a reputation, I think. Out in the Mountain West, it's Hawaii against Boise State. Um, Boise State, you know, sort of in the on-deck circle for that New Year's Six bid. If Memphis were to lose to Cincinnati, that's an assumption on my part. I had, which is very weird, because at this time of the year, you get some very weird things going on in your mentions, and I had Cincinnati and Boise fans fighting in my mentions over the weekend, because I think I had said, you know, I think I would take Cincinnati, even if, you know, over Boise, if Cincinnati beats Memphis uh, for that New Year Six bid, uh, because I, I hate to sort of punish Cincinnati for playing Ohio State like Ohio State would beat anybody other than maybe Clemson and a couple of other teams so I'm sort of by by saying oh you only went you have two losses so we're going to eliminate you doesn't seem right when they played Ohio State anyway that's I don't know that's a little here or there but your thoughts on that or anything else about Hawaii and Boise I totally disagree with you okay, um, about Cincinnati, Boise State. Okay. Um, Boise State has a better Power Five win, Florida State against UCLA. I mean, they're both terrible. Florida State six and six, UCLA is four and eight. It's a better win. They both beat Marshall in non-conference play by similar results. No, 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 um, that's not true. Cincinnati tore the doors off of Marshall. Okay, you're exactly right. Okay. Um, still, both beat Marshall. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think wasn't Boise on the road? Um. Boise, no, no, Marshall was at Boise. Mar- Marshall was at Boise. Okay, so both beat Marshall in non-conference. <laughs> okay. Boise's got the chance for five wins against bowl teams in conference play, counting Hawaii twice. Um, that includes a top 25 team in Air Force. Cincinnati has two. Even one of them is Central Florida, but Central Florida is no longer in the top 25. Right. The, the, the East was weak, and the, and Cincinnati also drew or missed most of the good teams in the West. In the West. Yeah. And also... Look, this is not to take away from Cincinnati turning into a top 25 program under Fickle. I mean, if he's there next year, they'll be right back in the mix. They haven't been that good for the last month. They haven't. Yeah. Struggled with ECU. That's true. Um, they struggled with Temple, and Temple's good nonetheless. But they, they struggled in two road games, ECU and another that I'm blanking off the top of my head. Oh, USF. They needed a, they needed something USF to break down, down the stretch. Right. Yep, on the road. They got Charlie Strong fired. Thanks. And then Boise um, has been rolling. Okay. Boise's really good. Uh, this is Boise. Uh, I think uh, Boise gets in at twelve and one over okay. ten over eleven and two Cincinnati. Okay, we'll agree to disagree on that one. Um, so going to the American then. That said, I think Memphis is a, is a significant amount better than Cincinnati. They've got some like SEC level playmakers. The intri- the intrigue of after that game will be how soon Mike Norvell jumps to another job. I would be surprised at this point unless Florida State sort of pulls a rabbit out of its head to use uh, uh, Jason Witten's phrase, I I would be surprised if it's not Mike Norvell as the next Florida State coach. Again, unless they just find like a a big fish somewhere and it's all of a sudden they surprise a lot of people and it's Mike Gundy or, or, and it's Gary Patterson, you know, something like that. Mm, Like I, I, I think it's probably just going to be Mike Norvell, which is, would be a very good hire. But anyway, that's after the game. Who do you think will win the game? And do you think Norvell will be around much longer after it? Yeah, uh, I thought from this past weekend that Memphis is, is the better team. I think everyone really agreed that you know, that's probably the case. I think the only way Cincinnati wins this game is if Memphis makes a ton of mistakes. And I, they don't seem to me to be the team that is going to be this close to the finish line and then and then stumbles. So I got Memphis winning the game. And, yeah, I mean, 
whether it's Ole Miss or it's Florida State or another, Mike Norvell needs to strike because, like, you can do this again next year. Um, if possible, go 12-1. and one. If you do, that's incredible. But you're probably not going to have your stock be any higher than it is right now. So you could wait to see if X job opens, that's your dream job, quote-unquote, or you can go to Florida State or Ole Miss right now. And I think most guys, if they're smart, you take a bird in the hand. Yeah, and Florida State, listen, I think there's a lot of building to be done at Florida State. I think that there is significant work to be done there. I do not think it is a quick turnaround, but it is also Florida State. It's in a great division. You can get a lot of great players. Like, I don't think this is a five-year build. Now, they might be five years away from sniffing or really threatening Clemson, but they could be two or three years away from being sort of back in a situation where, hey, they're knocking out 10 wins. They are clearly the second-best team in the ACC. That could happen relatively quickly. Um, I re- Yeah, I mean, if you look at Memphis, as far as this game is concerned, I just they, they're the better team. They just have a far more playmakers. And unless Memphis opens the door to Cincinnati with some mistakes, I, I just don't think Cincinnati can beat them in the Liberty Bowl. Uh, the Power Five games. So let's start on Friday. That's a big one. What does Utah need to do to make its case to the selection committee that if things go a certain way at the SEC and number four is available, that they should be number four? Um, they just need to keep doing what they've been doing, which is beating the hell out of everybody. Um, like, it was shocking. Like, I'm sure a lot of people saw Utah for the first time on Saturday night against Colorado because most people don't stay up late or watch Pac-12 Network or whatever. Um, and they were like, this is the team after it was the first quarter. What was right, it like? right. It was seven. Seven six, seven, whatever, six whatever something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was close. And you're like, wow, okay, so this is the team. Alabama would kill these guys. And then they scored 38 points in like 18 minutes of game. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what Utah does. And they're like, I think there's this idea that Utah is this scrappy bunch of underdogs. Like, wait till April or May and see how many Utah names are called in the draft, yeah. especially on defense. Yeah. You're going to see like seven or eight guys from this team get drafted. This is a hugely talented team with an incredible running back, a quarterback playing out of his head. Uh, one of the top defensive lines in the country, uh, stoppers in the secondary, one of the best coaches in football in Kyle Winningham. Um, I think that if they just take care of business and do what they've done all year, I don't think anyone would be surprised if they beat Oregon by 14 points because I think the consensus, and maybe I'm wrong, from, and you can correct me, my feeling all season that Utah's been a 10 or 14-point team better than Oregon. Utah's always seemed like the better football team. Uh, yeah, so, I, I, a couple of weeks before, in fact, the week before Oregon lost to Arizona State, I was like, listen, I don't care what resumes and stuff say and where the rankings are. Utah, it looks better than Oregon to me. Utah looks significantly better than Oregon to me, and I would not be surprised. Oregon's offense just looks constipated, man. Like, yeah. they, I, you can't help but, like, I wrote this over the weekend, you can't help from walk, like, pull back on Oregon and say, Boy, Justin Herbert's got 31 touchdowns and like four interceptions, and there's some nice numbers there. But you sort of feel like they they didn't maximize that guy's senior year. No, and and you know what? For Oregon, it's usually disappointing not to enter this game with a shot because of what you mentioned. You brought back a senior, top 10 pick, elite quarterback, one of the top in program history. Um, you had the best offensive line in the country, a group that you knew was going to be dominant from the start. You brought in one of the top recruiting classes in program history, if not the top guys with immediate impact. You had seniors in the back seven. You had a secondary that was a year older and more experienced. Uh, you had the fact that the North is uh, abysmal. I mean, Stanford and UW and Washington State, huge drop-offs. Your second-place team is Oregon State. Right. Um, right. Compared so, to recently, right, that's been the power side of the Pac-12, and all of the power teams took a step back this year. 
Right. Everything came together for Oregon. So for them not to be here is an indictment of the offense and an indictment of the fact that they couldn't get it done. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, Utah to me is like a well-trained uh, army battalion. They're just like march, 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 march. And Oregon, uh, constipated was a, was a good term. It, nothing comes easy. They need some softener. And uh, <laughs> Utah, I just feel like Utah is not going to get beat at this point in the season. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, but, but so we'll attach it right to the Big 12 because that's going to be the big question, again, depending on what goes on with the SEC, is – you know, the Big 12 champion or the Pac-12 champion, does, could could Utah win a close game? If Utah, you know, wins 24-21 to 21 on a walk-off field goal, does that somehow swing your opinion depending on what goes on in the Big 12 game? And who do you think will win the Big 12 game? Well, I think a close Utah win offsets any Baylor win. Um, I don't think Baylor, they'll be eight this week is, is my belief. I don't think any Baylor win is going to is going to move them ahead of Utah, unfortunately. I just, I just think in that room there's this perception that Baylor's um, sneaked by on a, on a terrible non-conference um, and just kind of survived like six or seven close brushes. I, with I mean, that. they did, and they did. I mean, I think Baylor's really good, and, and, and Matt Rule's done a great job, and, and their underlying stats show that they are a very, very good team, but like they also have had like some great escapes, and that has to weigh to a certain degree. On yeah, but the when, when you watched Oklahoma on Saturday night, um, didn't you think like, man, they're beatable Baylor. I mean, I mean, man, Baylor, Baylor could beat this team. I mean, a, because they should have the first time, but Oklahoma just seems beatable. Uh, you I mean, know, they're very, they're gettable. They're extremely gettable. I, I, I wonder how much the perception of that is simply because they went through a stretch of games where they just kept turning the damn ball over. Like they, they got into uh, almost all of those close games they just were really slow. Now that's a that's that that's on your permanent record, right? That's not something that you just say. Well, they had some bad turnover luck. No, that's on your record as being a problem, and that might be the thing that gets them knocked out of the uh, playoff. But I also still see an offense that, when they stop turning the ball over and Jalen is a little more careful with the ball, is still really really tough to stop. Well, here's the issue for Oklahoma. Um, Iowa State and Oklahoma State are out of the top twenty-five. So those wins are, are, are solid, but no longer meaningful. Um, I think, like, you know how you say in a presidential election, like, Ohio is the tipping point for everything? Mm-hmm. Um, I think keep an eye on Kansas State. Because if Kansas State gets into the top 25 this week at 8-4 and four off a win of Iowa State, whether it's 25, 24, whatever, um, that, to me, offsets the fact that Oklahoma is losing two top 25 wins. Because then you look and you say, okay, well, this is a quality loss. This is a quality loss to a They're very good team. That they were we, on the road. They almost came back. On the road, right? And, like, you know, you always make excuses. The excuse was uh, they were sloppy, but for the last 14 minutes, they played like the number one team in the country. Um, so I think that's something to keep an eye on. If Kansas State gets in, I think that's good for Oklahoma, obviously. I mean, it's really good. But if K-State's out, Oklahoma State and Iowa State are out, I mean, Oklahoma's got Baylor and that's it. So if they, if they beat Baylor by 25, or let's just say they beat him by 17, because no one can really blow out Baylor. They beat him by 17. Maybe the committee says, well, they haven't beat anybody else, and they showed on Saturday that Baylor was not that good because, you know, they beat him by 20. Just playing devil's advocate. I, I'm, I, I don't think it's – I think a week ago when you saw Oklahoma State and Baylor both in the top 25 and you saw that the, they were playing Oklahoma and then you looked at Utah's schedule – I think it would have been easy to say, oh, Oklahoma's got the it's they've got it made. They just got to win out. They've got two quality wins. Um, I think it's more nuanced than that. I don't think it's going to be as easy as they win and they're in. 
Okay, so my my quick read is I I think the committee has become enamored with Utah's blowouts because they're so dominant. Uh, if they do it again, I think they're in good shape. If and I think they might, I think they might beat Oregon by, as you said, a couple of touchdowns, maybe more, because they look like a platoon at this point. But it is interesting when I, when you start digging because I I love the analytics. So when you start digging into the numbers, like you know the SP plus and FPI and ESPN, and there are some others out there, Sagarin or FEI, like Oklahoma has is a little ahead of Utah in most of those metrics. Not a lot, not a ton. Uh, they're generally pretty close, but they've been a little ahead. So again, I feel like there's a perception here of simply Utah's had a bunch of blowouts against a lot of mediocre teams, and Oklahoma got itself into some close games because it couldn't take care of the football. And that's essentially the razor-thin margin. Uh, and if you put them both on the field together, my guess is it would be a really interesting game. But my perception of it, I, I'm trying to decide like what the committee will do. I think the committee will take Utah. What would I do? I think I might take Oklahoma. Let's move hmm. on. Let's move on. LSU and Ohio State in, no matter what happens this weekend. Um, yes or no? No. Oh, give me the scenario where one of them is not in. I think if Georgia beats LSU, I, I'm not willing to say that LSU is going to stay in the top four. I, really? Because that's yeah. I mean, but that's that's that is the the default position right now that there's no way LSU all LSU has to do is is show up and they're and they're going to get in the playoff no matter what happens in the SEC championship game. So that that means the committee is willing to say um to a group of people who represent a variety of conferences and levels of competition, we believe the second best team in the SEC without a conference championship is better than these two Power 5 conference champions who are both 12 and 1. They'd be willing to say that. Now they have moved, and we'll see what happens tonight. And we're recording this before the rankings tonight, and I I do think there is at least a little bit of a chance that LSU were to could well. No, I won't. I won't say that LSU won't jump back to number one tonight because no way. No, no not way. not tonight. I, but I do think that they could be number one if they roll Georgia. Mm-hmm. So, but that doesn't affect this conversation we're having because the conversation we're having right now is what if LSU loses, falling out from two to completely out. All right, now, most people aren't aren't planting their flag on that hill, but you you think that that's that, a possibility? That, that, that is a that is a moment that would create a rift in the playoff that would speed up the time the timeline that they want to go on, which is another four years, um, to an astronomical speed. I mean, you 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 don't want to make that statement. And look. I don't know why you can just say that LSU at 12 and one, having lost their biggest game of the season with the fact that beating Alabama is really no hot shake anymore. Um, I don't know why you would just automatically pencil them in into the top four. I mean, uh, you have built in excuses that they didn't win their conference, that the defense has been abysmal. Um, it, that they but were it hasn't exposed been, a, but it defense. hasn't been abysmal. It, it's been, it's been not great, but they're like 29th in the country in yards per play. It has not been abysmal. Um, it's been bad. This is, and and I'm not like I'm I'm saying that, but Rob Mullins has said the same thing. I mean, he has brought up the defense in those calls that we go on. So I think there's a built-in excuse there. That you, my basic point is this: you don't want to go down that road if you're the committee. You just don't want to do it. It's it's the precedent that you've been trying to avoid for a long time. Just don't do it. Well, I, I just, because just the, don't do it. because the argument would be in other years when we took when we took teams without conference championships. There were no other good options, right? Alabama, when it did a couple couple of years ago, 2017, was totally a default option. They were absolutely like, well, we don't like any of these teams, so we'll go with Alabama. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And when Ohio State did it, Ohio State had a clear resume built up that was, you know, that you could put against the Big Ten. And you only had one Big Ten team. So what the committee was saying is, yeah, you know, you have your division thing here going on. That's a little fakakta. We're just going to take your the best team in the Big Ten. Even though you played a championship game and handed a trophy to Penn State, the best team in your league is Ohio State, which pissed off Penn State, but you know didn't piss off everybody else because you were still only taking one Big Ten team. What you'd be doing here is you'd have other good options. You, you conceivably could have a good option from the Pac-12, a 12-1 team that's been dominant all year, and a and a twelve and one Big Twelve champion that has you know that could be Oklahoma for God's sakes. I mean, what kind of brand value do you want with a with a potential Heisman finalist quarterback? So you'd be passing up other good options to take the second best team in the SEC. That would be that would tick some people off. Yeah, and you would just say the SEC is better than everybody else. And the truth is that the conference is fine. It's it's not even the best conference in the country. Big Ten's better than the SEC. Give me a break. <laughs> Um, you are going to get letters. I don't care. I mean, look, the Big Ten is better than the SEC. Uh, tell me whatever you want. The sixth best team in the SEC is is goddamn Tennessee. Give me a break. <laughs> the Big Ten's got six teams in the top twenty. Give me a break. This is not the year to reward the SEC. In, in uh, other words, you know what? I, and, it's not, I, and it's not the year to penalize the Pac-12. It's not the year to penalize the Big Twelve because you believe in your heart of hearts that LSU's offense is so flashy and shiny that you need to give it a platform. You don't. Um, if they need to take care of business, the same rules apply for LSU as they do for everybody else. Win your games and get in. There, there, there's there's no participation trophies in this thing. All right. No, no, I don't I don't mind the take here because I've I'm sort of in the Joel Klatt uh, camp of saying that they should have made this thing four best conference champions when they had the chance um, to to take some of the the guesswork out of it. So that said, I also think that that Georgia doesn't have much of a chance against LSU. I, I am convinced. Jake Fromm has not broken 50% completion percentage in the last four games, and it's not yeah. been against the most killer competition. I, I think that their offense is broke. I, I yeah, think, what is going on? I, I think what is going on with them? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's a Fromm problem, if it's a James Coley problem, if it's a wide receivers or young problem, but there's I cannot see because there's no way they're holding LSU to 21. The only time LSU got held down this year was against Auburn. And against Auburn, LSU had over 500 yards of offense and kept malfunctioning in the red zone. They were lucky, Auburn, to hold them under 30. I okay. cannot see them being held under 30, and I cannot see Georgia getting into a shootout with LSU and winning. Okay, so the issue is, like you said, if it gets to above 24, then ball game because Georgia, I don't believe, is capable of scoring 24 points. Like, you know, that's an issue for Georgia. Well, well but but, no, but let me let me just interject something, though. But you said, well, LSU's defense is terrible, so maybe that opens up a path for Georgia to suddenly find its offense. But I think LSU's getting 35. You know, I, I, I'm i just setting the bar at 35 for them, and we'll see what happens from there. And I don't care you know how what? good Georgia's defense is. Georgia's defense is really good. This could be an antidote defense where it's like the, the okay. cure for all of LSU's, you know, explosiveness. All of a sudden they meet Georgia and they can't do anything. Okay. I think Georgia's defense is that good. Um, key to the game is uh, you got to be like plus two in turnovers. I mean, at least plus one. You really can't turn the ball over yourself. Yeah. Um, you have to convert in the red zone, which they they don't seem to do. Um, there's a there, there's a road in my mind to LSU. LSU to beat LSU. I've looked at LSU all season. I see a really nice football team, a really good football team, uh, maybe one of the best football teams that they've had uh, in, in quite some time. I don't see this juggernaut at all. 
So I see you, a team that's probably going to lose in the semis, in my opinion. You when see they get a to juggernaut of an offense, but not necessarily yeah, a juggernaut I, in other places. Clemson would, would, would take them behind the woodshed if they meet in the semis. That's just my opinion. Um, so I don't see LSU as unbeatable. Okay. I see them as a really great football team. God bless Ed Orgeron because he had so many detractors. Like He had more detractors than Fleck three years ago, and he's proved them all wrong. So bless him. Um, Joe Burrow is an incredible story. He's gonna. We're, we'll talk about him in a second, but he's going to lift something heavy in two weeks. Um, I just don't think LSU is as unbeatable as everyone else seems to think. That's just my opinion. Um, but you're right. It would take an offensive performance from Georgia that we haven't seen in, in several weeks to get to the point where they can match that defense and, and pull out an upset, or they get a pick six or something like that. Okay, and we'll be quick. You think Ohio State could lose and get in, though? To a higher degree than LSU, simply because of their dominance. Okay, um, and again, like, Ohio I, State's I, been operating on a historic level. We're talking like Ohio State in '71, Nebraska. Yeah, um, and that's it in the history of college football. Typically, that that gives you a pass. Right, and and again, we just know that like poor Jonathan Taylor. Uh, it's going to be another. He's had the most brilliant, one of the most brilliant careers in the history of college football for a running back, except when he plays Ohio State and they just beat the living hell out of him. And I my yeah, and, and my guess and, is that's what's going to happen again this weekend. I think so as well. I think Wisconsin's really good. Um, I think they are uh, a couple stupid moments from beating Illinois and and having this be a playing game. Yes. Um, so that's really disappointing for them. But they, it's a great bounce back season. I just think Ohio State um, is operating on a level that, uh, like like we said, not many people or not many teams rather have hit in the history of this sport. So I think Ohio State. Uh, it's probably a special team. Let's keep going here because I don't want to ask whether you think Clemson will beat Virginia because that would be insulting your intelligence. What the hell is up with Dabo? Like, even today, like as we're on the air, I, I'm sure you're looking at Twitter, right? We're on the air. I'm calling this on the air. As we're recording, I'm sure you're looking at Twitter or glancing at it and seeing some of these latest Dabo quotes about how the, the media perception is the reason why people like are down on the ACC and we don't get the respect that the SEC does. Dabo, man, like, I get it. I totally understand. Like, you want to play this card of being the underdog and how nobody nobody respects you because maybe that's a way of firing up your football team, which is playing as a 28-point favorite every week. And that's also sort of Dabo's DNA. He is the receiver's coach who everybody doubted, who became the best coach in the country. He is the guy who was selling real estate for a few years because he thought his college his coaching career was over. I get all of that. But Dabo, enough already. Enough. Okay, Dabo, enough already. You're the third best team in the country. We respect the hell out of your team. Please stop playing the woe is me thing. Um, so Dabo is a, uh, um, a great um, metaphorist, meaning that he always invents metaphors for his team. Like in the past, he's done uh, um, uh, windshield versus the rearview mirror. Like there's a reason the rear view is small and the windshield's big. You're supposed to look ahead and not look back. That's that was kind of cool. Okay. Rear view. What do you what do you call the one that's in, that's hanging on the on the windshield? Yeah, rear it's a rear view mirror. Yeah, rear, yeah. rear view. Yeah, okay. I drive cars. Um, so that's his thing, and he likes to have something. My, my feeling is that at this time of the year, and whatever his metaphor was for this season, he just needs to find a way to motivate a team that's beating everybody by 45 points. He sounds kind of dumb. We know he's not dumb. He he just sounds kind of stupid to us. But he doesn't play to an audience of us. He plays to an audience of 110. And I think that he's speaking to his team because he knows he works. Okay. It, it, it's gotten to it. No, I, I agree. And I like most of the year, I found myself saying, listen, this is not for us. This is not for us. He's using this stuff 
as all these perceived slights. But it just, you know, today I just was, I just sort of threw up my hand. And he did it on Saturday too, uh, when he talked about, no, they want to kick us out. Everybody's looking to kick us out. Uh, so I understand why he's doing it. But at a certain point, it's like enough, enough. Already. Yeah, but like, don't you ever like you ever, you know, you're watching on a Saturday, your wife comes in and she's like, oh, man, why is that team wearing those ugly uniforms? They look terrible. I said, you ever had that moment? Um, yes. That's what I say to Sam. I'll be like, well, look, um, you think they're ugly. I think they're ugly. But the team loves them. And the 18 year olds who are visiting love them. So sometimes it it, it helps to uh, realize that. We're not the target audience. Okay, it's good. I'm, 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 and I'm, I think Dabo's speaking to to a smaller crowd. I'm glad you talked me down from that. I, I, because I, you know it's it's hard not to respect and and in some ways like Dabo. He is he is generally good for our business. So I, I'm I'm glad you've talked me out of being mad at Dabo. So okay, we played the scenario game here. You definitely. So you think Clemson is this is at worst the second best team, right? You think Clemson and Ohio State are the best two teams. Um, like I'll say this right now is just between two of us. It's December third. Clemson's still the best team in the country. Yeah, they might be. They might no, be. like they're still they're going to win it again. <laughs> okay, I, I'm I've become a little infatuated with what I've seen out of Ohio State. I, I just man, Justin Fields, holy God, that guy. They get yards very easily. Ohio State. They just pick. They, do. they, they like five yards is just like oh yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that five yards. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I'll take that five yards. That can be a scary team. But, yeah, you know, ultimately, like, you're right. Like, I won't argue with you. Like, I may debate you a little bit. I may say, well, you know, I kind of like Ohio State a little more. But if you want to plant your flag on Clemson is the best team in the country, that's fine. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. But like you said, the the, the genius of Ohio State, certainly on offense, is, is exactly what you mentioned. There, there's no negative. You know what I mean? It seems like it's very infrequently when it's like third and nine or second and eleven. They're just always moving forward. They're, they're like we said about Utah. They are a battalion on the march. They are just they are just on the march, you know. And sometimes it's like a forty-five yard play, like when Fields came back from the injury and he just and he just flung it down the left sideline for a touchdown. And other times it's like six plays, seventy-nine yards, three minutes and twelve seconds, and each play is like eight yards, sixteen yards, seven yards, four yards, thirty-one yards. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're frightening. They're a frightening matchup. Uh, to me. I know LSU has been the team that you've been anointed to see LSU, Ohio State in the championship, and that may very well turn out to be the case. To me, the Clemson-Ohio State matchup, theoretically in a championship game, is the matchup of the two most balanced, complete, uh, all three phases, maybe not kicking for Clemson, but it's the, most, it's the best matchup of two complete teams in the country. Very nice. Joe Burrow is going to win the Heisman Trophy. This will be all our last topic. Uh, Andy Staples uh, got into trouble on Twitter this week, which was odd because he encouraged people not to vote. Are you a Heisman voter? I'm not a Heisman voter anymore. I, gave, I am. I gave, um, that, I gave that stuff up. Yeah, it's, so, it's pretty, pretty dull. So, so anyway, the, the, the point being that, like, there are games to be played this weekend. You shouldn't, and I agree with, like, you shouldn't vote until the games are played this weekend. Even if you think Burrow, which you probably should, most people, I think he's, he'll run away with it. But there are two other spots on the ballot. That, that are really hard to determine. So you shouldn't vote until after this weekend because you should wait to see how those other two spots, these players are going to play for those other two spots. Again, that's for some reason made LSU fans mad, but people get mad at everything. Who are you looking at as the, well, first of all, I don't want to assume you have Burrow number one. Who do you have as number one and who are you looking at for those two or three spots? Yeah, I've got Burrow number one because he's setting records. Um, in those final two spots, it's like a combination of fields, Young, Hurts, um, primarily. Um, I, I probably will end up going three quarterbacks. 
which is really pathetic. Like if, if Hubbard, if Chuba Hubbard, if Oklahoma State had beaten Oklahoma this past weekend and he had gone over 150 or 175 and played a key role, I, I would have been able to stomach putting him number three just to give some diversity. Um, but this is boring. Voting for the Heisman is boring. It's all hell. You're told all year who you're supposed to vote for, and everyone just does it. Um, my, my three points about the Heisman, number one, is it, it should be five every year. It always should be five, even if, you, if it's a runaway number one. Being a Heisman finalist is like being a congressman. You are for the rest of your life congressman or being a governor. Like you go to dinner when you're 91 and you're a governor. It should be an emeritus title, and it means a lot. So have five guys go every single year. Um, and secondly, um, I always wonder. I get three votes. I could vote for anybody, and they would never know. I always thought, like, if I put in the, the uh, an offensive lineman from Marshall as my third vote, like, that would show up and blow people's minds, right? Because if you get one vote, you're going to be on that, like, that printout we get on Saturday night. You know what I mean? It'll be like Joe Burrow, 12,000 points, and then Sam Hudson, one vote. Right, right. Just to mess with people. Um I think the Heisman Trust is like real fuddy duddy. Uh, do you think you, know you, I mean? you should have five? You're talking about five finalists, but do you think you should be able to vote for five people? Because that's been a theme on this podcast throughout the last few weeks. Mark Murphy talked about it. I talked about it with Heather, Heather Dinich. So, you, do you think you should have five spots available? Oh, I, I don't. They want five finalists as well. Like I'm not the only person who who is feel no, strongly about no, this. No, they want they want. Well, they would mind more finalists. I'm a big fan of more finalists, but they also want more spots on the ballot. So you're not just voting for top three; you're voting for top five, and that it, it makes it easier to get five finalists every year because there's more votes in the pool there, right? Well, that's not that's not how statistics work. No, but you like, could. No, I don't understand the idea, but like no, you could do one through one hundred, you're you're going to get the same variety and the same percentage of votes for everybody. No, I understand. So it's the same. It, it's the it's there. There are two different tracks here. So you do you want five finalists every year? But would you also like to be able to vote for five players? Oh, I don't care. I, I like making lists. If they want me to vote for twenty five, <laughs> I would do twenty. Like that would be fun for me. Like to go through everything and rank them. That would tickle my brain. Like you would believe. Okay, so you're not I, I you're, really you're not so a zealot on that one. But you five. just want five no, finalists because you do one through three, you're going to get the same results as if one through five. That's just how it works. So I think um, uh, I just want to see five finalists every single year. You know what I mean? Like okay, that's fine. No, I'm with you talk, on that. I'm we still you. talk about Troy Davis, who played for two crappy Iowa State teams in 1995 and 1996. We talk about Troy Davis because he hit 2,000 yards, but he was a Heisman Trophy finalist. Like you see Troy Davis on the street and and you've got a little four-year-old boy with you and he's like, oh, who's that guy? And you're like, that's a Heisman Trophy finalist, son. He was a Heisman Trophy finalist. For all else that he could do, he was a Heisman Trophy finalist. So I think it's a reward. We don't give these guys any money. I mean, God forbid. At least you could do is like reward five of the best players in the country. You get to come to Manhattan, eat a steak and some lobster, um, go see – rent or whatever is still playing on broadway and then and then you get to sit on stage and be a heisman trophy finalist that's in your wikipedia page when you die that's a that's in the first line of your obit short of wearing his jersey at the time there's no chance you would be able to identify troy davis walking down the no no way i have no uh he actually i'm sorry for me to identify troy davis he would have to um go back to the time machine get his his exact size and build and all of his pads and uniform from 1995 1996 and then come back and then walk in front of me and then turn his back so I would see um, Davis on the back. Right. I would have no idea who Troy Davis right. is you, or what he looks like. I don't ha- even know what he's up to. I hope he's doing well. You would have to be walking through uh, Lincoln Memorial uh, Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, seeing him dart through Cornhuskers. Right, like breaking a tackle from whoever was you know, starring for those teams in the 90s. Right. Um, exactly. here's, a, here's a question, Ralph. Okay, so you and I, we go to uh, – 
I mean, this is obviously unrealistic because we never see each other. But you and I go and we have a drink. We have we go for a bagel at Mile End down the street from me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. We come out and all of a sudden we see Tua Tagovailoa walking towards us on Atlantic Avenue. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if we followed Tua and he took a left on Smith Street, top of Smith, back down court, would he get stopped in our neighborhood? Would would anyone recognize him in our neighborhood? Um, no. You don't think so? So you think Tua Tagovailoa? could spend 30 minutes walking through Brooklyn and no one would recognize him. I think that the the probability is low. Like, I think he could be. Because, mm-hmm. you know, listen, there are kids who, who watch who watch football. There are there are young football fans, and I, especially kids, because kids are really in tune to that stuff. So maybe, but I think the chances are less than 25% that if Tua Tagovailoa took the walk that you suggested, he would be recognized. Wow. Wow, that's great. That's really funny. That's, That's good... not the case everywhere. No, no, I, I dig that. Yeah. On that note, we have done a – this is a monster podcast getting you ready for the weekend. I hope you all enjoy it because I very much enjoy talking to my friend Paul Meyerberg. Thank you very much, Paul. Paul, yeah. the, the great uh, National College football writer from USA Today. Thanks for taking all this time and covering all this ground. Yeah, and, and enjoy the weekend, Ralph. It's going to be fun. And now three and out. First down. Tom Herman is gutting his staff at Texas. Those could end up being the most interesting coaching moves of this entire offseason. The Longhorns have enough money to make a bunch of assistant coaches millionaires, uh, and including some of the ones they don't hire just by offers. Uh, will they try to pry Joe Brady away from LSU? Chad Morris is a free agent now that he's been fired at Arkansas. He certainly has a good pedigree from his time at Clemson. On the defensive side, maybe Texas makes a move on, I don't know, Clark Lee from Notre Dame. Uh, Could they convince Jim Levitt to join the staff? He's another guy who's sort of a free agent right now. I know this. There's a good chance a bunch of coaches are going to get raises because of Texas. Second down. There is one too many bowl-eligible teams this year, which likely means one of those extra 6-6 and MAC teams is staying home. Sorry, Eastern Michigan or Toledo or maybe Kent State. Uh, the SEC and Big 12 both won't have enough bowl-eligible teams to fill their spots. The ACC has one extra eligible team. So that means some group of five team, and I've seen it projected maybe Air Force, maybe it's one of those MAC teams, some group of five team is going to end up in a Power 5 bowl game and be very, very happy about going to Shreveport or maybe Phoenix. Third down, it's impossible to be too far off the radar during championship weekend, but let me go to Conference USA. We talked about Bill Clark from UAB, Lane Kiffin from FAU, two guys who might be on their way to bigger jobs at bigger schools. Another Conference USA coach who's sort of been off the radar but done a really nice job is Skip Holtz. From Louisiana Tech. He's 55 and 36 in seven seasons at the school, 37 and 19 in conference play. He's made six straight bowl games and he's finished first in his division three times. The only thing he's missing is a conference title. Lou Holtz's son is 55 years old, and I'm not expecting a long list of P5 suitors for him. But other than a failed stop at USF, he has done a nice job at UConn. East Carolina, and La Tech. Listen, Holtz wouldn't be a splashy hire. He is probably not going to end up in the SEC. But there are going to be other coaches landing bigger jobs 
who don't have the track record of success that Skip Holtz has. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts at Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. Enjoy championship weekend and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.